Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this evening. We're grateful for your many blessings, grateful, Father, for the country in which we live, that we can still freely gather and proclaim your name. I thank you for everyone here and pray for their, uh, the needs and concerns and praises and gratitude in our lives. We simply lift up to you all that we are and praise your name in Christ's name. Amen. So we are uh, going to be sending out uh, kind of updates or question line. You guys know that by now, where to text your questions. And you probably know about the Israel trip next February, but I wanted to give you that. That's also not just exclusive for Crossings members, but we, we only advertise it in Crossings for a while to make sure we get folks that can and go. We'd like that opportunity. It's a discipleship ministry for us. But the cards, put your email address on those. You can text that email address in to Laura, and we'll get it on a list. And what we'll do this summer, since we won't be meeting as much for classes, is send out some Bible lessons, etc. So in uh, July, we'll have a three-week series. Then starting in August, we'll kick off with a bunch of classes, probably. We probably won't just have this one now, kind of relaunching it. You'll see advertising out into the community. We'd like to be the premier Bible study platform to serve our city. In other words, we have the capacity. We have wonderful teachers here. We'd like to serve our city with, with uh, Bible teaching. So you'll see Wednesday night's a big deal. In here, in August, we'll start a Christians and Politics series because I thought we'd do something just nobody would have any questions about. <laughs> so that's what we will do in August. So email addresses, and we'll get you that information. We are going to uh, jump in to, we're going to finish the book of Acts. So last week, if you remember, we left the Apostle Paul in Caesarea, that's in Israel, and he was in front of the Roman governor, a man named Festus. So he made his defense, but Festus, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And he said, Paul, would you like to go to Jerusalem? Well, Paul knew and Festus knew they were going to kill Paul as soon as he got out from under the Roman umbrella. And Paul said, no, I'm a... I'm before Caesar's court. I'm a Roman citizen, and I know that I have the right to appeal to Caesar, and so I do. And Festus, when he conferred with his advisors, he said, you've appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. And so he had the right to be transported to Rome to stand trial in front of Caesar. At that time, the emperor Nero. The date for this, 59 or 60 AD. So we're about 59 or 60 AD. So let's pick up our story. Chapter 27, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Luke is back with us. He probably has been here this entire time for the trials, but he's going to accompany Paul to Rome. When it was decided we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius. He belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. I'll show you a map in a, section, in a second and kind of show you the way we're going for the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, he's one of the Christians from there that's been traveling with Paul, went with us. The next day, they landed at Sidon, that's in modern-day Lebanon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends. They might provide for his needs. Uh, the one thing about the Romans didn't do is if you were a prisoner, you had to get your own food and you had to take care of yourself. And so you better have some friends or you were not going to be a prisoner for long. You were going to die of starvation. So then they put out to sea again, passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. We sailed across the open sea. That's always risky in those days. Off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, I'll show you where these are, 
We landed at Myra and Lycia. So now they're in Turkey. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. The ships from Alexandria, this is a big a seagoing ship. It's still risky, but the little ships would hug the coast. These bigger ships would go across. This is a grain ship coming from Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt. The Roman Empire, particularly Rome itself, could not survive without massive imports of grain. And so they conquered Egypt, and Egypt was the, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And so they're constantly shipping massive, not by our standards massive, but pretty, pretty big grain ships. And so this one's headed for Rome, and so they, Julius, got them passage on it. We made slow headway for many days, and we had difficulty arriving off Canidus, and the wind did not allow us to hold our course. We sailed to the Lee of Crete, and we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Haven. So I'm going to show you this map. You'll see on the bottom right, we're starting out from Caesarea up to Sidon on the far right side of the map. They're going to go around Cyprus, and they're kind of hugging the coast, you'll see. They want to stay in sight of land because they just don't have very good navigation uh, materials. So they get to Myra, and they get to Canidus. Canidus, ancient port, uh, you see reference in secular literature that as early as the 5th century B.C., 500 years before this, uh, Egyptian ships were trading there. So then they take off, and they're trying to, to get across directly over to Italy, but instead the winds are blowing them, so they have to go around the south side of Crete. Went on the south side because the winds at this time come from the north and the east. This is in the fall, and it's not a very safe time to travel. And so they're having a little trouble, but they manage to make, uh, make a port in Fairhavens. You see them there on Crete. Nobody knows exactly where that city is today, but undoubtedly it's on that southern part of Crete. So that's where they've made it to, and, it's, and at that point they realize this is going to be really tricky. So our story goes on in chapter 27. It said, since a lot of time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, this is chapter 27, verse 9, because even the fast was already over. The fast is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. A lot of times you'll see the Jews measure the year in terms of the festivals. And so he's saying, look, it was already past the Day of Atonement. In that time in history, that would be late September or early October. It was considered unsafe for them to travel any time from the beginning of September to the end of November. So they're already in really dicey time here. So Paul addressed them and advised them, saying, Listen, guys, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and loss. We're not only going to lose the ship, we're going to lose our own lives. Now, Paul knows what he's talking about. Because he's already written in 2 Corinthians 11, early, before this, he, he, that's where he says, look, I've been beaten by the Romans with rods, I've been lashed by the Jews. He's talking about all the things you've heard about how difficult his ministry is, but he mentions in there, I've been shipwrecked three times. I mean, nobody will write this guy life insurance at all. I mean, the odds of surviving three shipwrecks are not good. I'll give you some statistics in a minute about some other ancient wrecks, and you'll realize, man, that's, that's amazing. So he's advising him. He says, look, we're probably going to get killed if we go on. This is not smart. But the centurion paid attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship. Well, what do they want to do? They want to get that grain to Rome so they can get paid, and they don't want to lose the contract. So they decide to push on instead, and they thought... Maybe we could reach a better harbor on Crete 
and at least Phoenix over there on the west side of Crete, maybe at least we can get over there and then we'll winter there if we have to. Now the south wind picked up, blowing gently, and they thought, bonus, the gods are with us, literally. The seamen thought the gods are with us. And so they weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete, very close to the shore. But soon a tempest came up called a northeaster, and it struck, and when the ship was caught, they could not even get to shore. Ancient writers talk about these winds coming up very quick, a northeaster. And uh, in fact, uh, one ancient writer talked about how he saw one time when this wind came up so suddenly, it blew a bunch of grazing animals off a cliff. I mean, these are powerful winds. Think about these ships that really don't have any way to navigate without the wind. And this was so strong that they couldn't even face the wind. So we gave way to it, meaning it's going to blow us where it's going to blow it. And we were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. You can see it right there, just to the, the southwest of Crete. Running under the lee of that, we managed to secure the ship's boat. And so they undergirded the ship. What they did was, they were so worried this entire ship is going to break up. There are 276 people on board the ship. You're going to find that out later. What they did was they took the boat and they wrapped uh, ropes around the hull, underneath and up around the hull, and tied the ship together to try to hold it together. By the way, there have been pictures you know how the Egyptians painted pictures of everything? You know, they carve it into stone, they paint the pictures. There are painted pictures from 1500 BC of Egyptian sailors doing this very thing, wrapping their uh, boat with, with ropes to try to keep it from breaking up. So that's what they're doing. They're getting desperate. Then fearing that we'd run aground, meaning they can't even see where they're going, they lowered the gear, and thus we were driven along. What they did was they took their anchors, and they let the anchors out to slow them down, hoping they just would ride it out. So they're just trying to survive at this point. But we were driven along, but since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to start throwing the cargo overboard because of the waves would swamp the ship. They need to lighten the ship so it can ride up. They start throwing their cargo overboard, and on the third day, I mean, this is three days of violent storms, uh, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, meaning at this point it's like, God help us, because we, we have no idea what to do. When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days, I'm in verse 20, uh, and by the way, you can't navigate for them. They don't have compasses at that time. They need the sun or the stars to be able to navigate at all. When that did not appear for many days, we gave up all hope of being saved. I mean, think about where they are at this point. I mean, they realize that we are going to die. It's just a matter of time before the storm beats the ship and it falls apart and we all drown. And so they said we gave up all hope of being rescued or saved. By the way, this is an interesting point in the story because when we talk about being saved, when I say that word in a church, you think about, oh yeah, that means that we're all going to go to heaven or you know, we said a prayer, we walked an aisle or whatever we did, you know, we're spiritually saved. I want you to understand that that word in the New Testament was not a religious word. This is the same word. And it was typically when you said, hey, were you saved, what people meant like, oh, somebody rescued us. And so this, this religious word of being saved 
just simply means you're being rescued from a very dangerous situation. That's why the New Testament uses that word, is here we are caught in the storm of sin in our lives, ready to go aground on the rocks, given up all hope. This is the book of Romans. Paul says, we have no hope whatsoever, and then we were rescued. That's the image of Jesus Christ, and that's what's happening here. He said, look, we gave up all hope of being saved. And so uh, what Paul says then is very interesting. After the men had gone a long time without food, I mean, you got to be seasick too. I mean, think this is miserable. This is many days now of just constantly in the storm. Paul stood up and said, men, you should have taken my advice. I mean, got to say I told you so, right? Everybody in here, every woman in here knows, yeah, typical husband. Anyway, but men, you should have taken my advice not to sail. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and this loss. But I urge you to keep up your courage because this is a bold thing to say, because not one of you will be lost, but the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am, that's a very interesting thing that Paul says. He always talks about, I belong to God. In the New Testament, most of his letters start, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. The God whose I am and who I serve stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul, you are going to stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of everybody else who sails with you. He's going to spare you, but he's so gracious, he's going to spare everybody else. So keep up your courage, men. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Boy, there's a story for life right there, isn't it? I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. As difficult as it looks. He said, but we're going to have to run aground on some island uh, to be saved. Let me pause there because I want to give you just a mini lesson here. This is really interesting. Uh, all these people, the other 275 people on this boat, are going to be rescued. They're going to be saved. They're going to have their lives because of something God is doing with Paul. And I think sometimes we flip this around and we sometimes say, hey, why does God make bad things happen to me? But have you ever wondered how many times have you and I been spared because of something God was doing with somebody else? Does that make sense? Sometimes we think, look, it's not fair for something bad to happen to me. It's not my fault. God, you should have taken care of that. How many times do I stop and thank God for the times you took care of me when it was something else going on? But the biggest lesson here, and this is probably the best thing, when we get into difficulties, this is one of the things that will really, well, I can't say it'll help you or not. I'll tell you what, if it doesn't help you, write me, I'll give you your money back. But I think that it will help us to think about it this way. It's not always about us. I mean, if you stop and think about this, those sailors, all the 275 sailors and passengers are going to be saved, and it's not about them. They go, I wonder why God saved me. I'll tell you exactly why, because he's going to get Paul to Rome, because he wants Rome. He wants Paul to go to Rome and testify before Caesar. A lot of times the things that happen to us aren't about us. And sometimes we want to personalize it. We want to say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Or God, why would you do this good thing? And you know, sometimes it's just not always all about us. Well, this case it's not. Paul's going to spare everybody here, or God is going to spare everybody here for the sake of Paul. This, by the way, is what Jesus meant when he said, when he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. In other words, it's not always about what happens to me. It's about what do you need done? What are you doing? Because in the words of Paul, we're going to trust God. 
that he's going to work this out. I mean, this is the gospel in a little nutshell being lived out on this boat. So he said, nevertheless, we're going to run aground on some island. So let me pick up our story in chapter 27, verse 27. The 14th night came. They were 14 days like this as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. And about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they dropped down a sounding and found 20 fathoms, 120 uh, feet. A little further on, they took a sounding, only 15 fathoms. So the ocean's coming up. They think maybe we're getting near land. So they decide that they say, oh, we're going to go put the anchor out. And they get in the boat, and they're going to leave. They're going to leave everybody. And Paul said, you better stop those guys, because if they leave, nobody can pilot this ship. And so the centurion goes over, gets them in, throws the boat over and says, we're all in this thing together. And so they ride it out uh, through the night, and they uh, come to basically from Cauda. You see where that is in Crete? In that 14 days, they get blown all the way to Malta. That is 475 miles. But the other thing I want you to notice is, what do you suppose the odds are of being blown by the wind, no steering, can't see anything, that you actually hit that island in the middle of the sea? This is amazing. That's why they thought they were going to die. Their point is, there's nothing out here. We're going to die. They hit Malta. You see God's hand in the middle of all of these circumstances. And so it goes on and he says, so they thought that they were going to, uh, to run aground. And he said, we're going to need to wait until light to see, can we see the, the land? And if so, then we'll do it. And they were encouraged. And this is where it said, and there were in all 276 people in the ship. Every one of them is going to be rescued. None of them are going to die. That is really unusual. I told you about the first century historian. He wrote in the 70s. I mean, he's alive at this time. Josephus, he's a Jewish guy, kind of turns traitor to the Romans, then starts writing some history, just probably to clear his name. But anyway, he writes some history. He was traveling to Rome, and he was in a shipwreck. It's not that uncommon. On his boat, there were 600 people, only 80 survived, and that's much more normal, is that only a handful would survive a shipwreck like this. But that's not the case here. In this case, when daylight came, they didn't know what the land was, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach. They decided to run the ship aground. By the way, Luke in this chapter is so very detailed, and I can't tell you, but the Greek words he's using, very technical nautical terms. I mean, this is clearly an eyewitness telling you what happened in great detail. He said they decided to run the ship aground. They cut loose the anchor, left them in the sea, and then they untied the uh, ropes that held the rudders, and they thought they would try to steer, put up a sail, but they got stuck on a sandbar, and the stern was getting literally broken to pieces. The soldiers decided to kill all the prisoners to prevent any of them from escaping. That sounds cold-blooded, because they're probably going to die anyway. But here's the deal. Their lives were going to be forfeit if any of those prisoners escaped. Do you remember the Philippian jailer? Remember when they were in Philippi and Paul was in jail? Earthquake happens. Jailer comes and goes, oh, no, they've escaped, and he gets his sword and, and is about to kill himself. Paul says, we're here. We didn't go anywhere. He was going to kill himself because he would be disgraced and he would be executed for losing his prisoners. 
Well, that's what these soldiers are thinking. Look, if we all die, then we all die. But if we make it and we don't have these prisoners, we're in trouble. So we at least want to be able to say, we took care of the problem, we killed the prisoners. But the centurion, this is a really kind of a bold move, wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plans. So he ordered everybody that could swim to jump overboard and get to land. The rest got on planks or pieces of the ship, and in this way, everyone reached safety. It's just exactly the way Paul said. The odds against them hitting Malta, the odds against these people surviving, everybody that hit that shore had to think, okay, Paul, you're going to have to tell me more about your God because this is a big deal. So God spared everybody. And kind of the message here is, uh, and this is an obvious lesson, but I really want you to think about what you've seen through the whole book of Acts is just step back. Let me just describe the book of Acts to you. It looks like the forces that are arrayed against God's people, whether it's the Jewish authorities trying to stamp this out early in the book of Acts, or whether it's the Jews trying to kill Paul, beat him, run him out of town, then later try to kill him, or the Romans who decide, hey, wait a minute, you're a problem, I'm going to put you in prison, or it's the sea trying, you know, literally going to kill them on this trip. It's what you see is always forces allied and arrayed against God's people. But every time it happens, we come to the realization, wait a minute, that's not what's really driving things here. The Spirit of God is actually orchestrating what's going on despite what it appears. That, this story is the pinnacle of that lesson. What you see here looks like the Jews are powerful, they shut Paul up. The Romans are powerful, he's a prisoner. The elements are powerful, they're trying to kill him, and yet God says, everybody is going to be safe. The lesson for us is the same. In our lives, when we face difficulties, it looks like the world troubles, health problems, economic problems, oil industry. It looks like that's just so powerful, what can we do? If Acts has one lesson, I mean, above all others, it's that the Holy Spirit, that God is really sovereign in the world, that everything is working to his purposes, that the things that seem really strong to us cannot thwart the power of God. Our God is trustworthy. As, as Paul said, let's have faith in God that it will work out the way he intends it to work out. And that's exactly what you see here. This story in chapter 27 is remarkable but it's there not to just tell you about a shipwreck. It's there to demonstrate that no matter how dark things seem, God is the one moving events in the world. That's a powerful message for us. I know that in the time, those guys are going, yeah, I trust that God's doing it, but it's really unpleasant. That's true. When we get into difficulties, it's unpleasant. But there's always hope because we know that our God is stronger than the forces against us. And that's a powerful lesson from the book of Acts. Well, they arrive on the island of Malta, and you think, well, finally, the story's over. I mean, I'm emotionally wrung out from this whole journey. And shipwreck, once safely on shore, we found that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. Oh, things are getting better. They built a fire and welcomed us because it was raining. By the way, these details are kind of amazing, how much detail Luke gives. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for even though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul 
shook the snake off into the fire, suffered no ill effects, and the people all watched. They were expecting him to keel over any minute, but after waiting for a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen, they changed their minds and decided he must be a god. <laughs> this, is the, this is the way they thought about this. That word justice, by the way, is capitalized because they thought that justice was a goddess, not just an idea, but literally a goddess who made sure things worked out right. So they thought, oh, what are the odds of this? This poor guy's been in a storm for 14 days. He's been in a shipwreck. He pulls up onto shore and goes, oh, thank you, Lord, I'm saved. And then he gets bit by a poisonous snake. And they said, well, he must have done something really bad, and the goddess justice is not going to let him survive. By the way, I know that you think, wow, how superstitious are they? We do the same thing in our world. There are a lot of people who are not Buddhists, but they believe in karma. Have you ever heard that saying, what goes around comes around? You know, and that it all works out in the end, and it's the great circle of life, and I'm moving into Disney movies now. Yeah, you kind of, you see what I'm saying? We got this idea that there's an essential fairness to life. Okay, if you believe that after you were three years old, I'm sorry. I've just got to be telling you, there is no essential fairness in life. They are worse superstitious, and so are we. But I rejoice in that because I think that a lot of times we look at life and we go, why does, are things unfair? Because really, let me just tell you, nobody really minds that life is unfair. You just want it to be unfair in your favor. I mean, I remember that was the essence of business career. I really didn't mind if the business situation was unfair, like we had a, we had a bit of an advantage. I just wanted it to be in our favor, you know, so we would win. That's kind of the way we are. And the, the news for Christians is this, life is unfair and it's incredibly unfair in your favor, meaning you get mercy and grace from God so that instead of being doomed by our sin, you are forgiven. And so we should rejoice in the unfairness of life. But they were pretty superstitious. They thought, well, he must have been you know, a murderer, but then he doesn't die. Well, what does that do to their theology? Well, either the gods don't exist or, hey, wait a minute, he's probably a god. So we kind of have those same really weird rules uh, that happen to us sometimes too. But that's what they're talking about. They thought this pagan goddess was going to take care of him. Well, he's on the island of Malta. You see it over there in the west. And believe it or not, now this is crazy, this storm has actually made them get to Rome faster than they ever would have gotten to Rome before. Malta's an interesting island, by the way. Here's a picture. You can see St. Paul's Bay. It's named St. Paul's Bay now. It wasn't named St. Paul's Bay then. But that is probably where this happened. It fits all the descriptions perfectly. Let me give you a, a satellite view. But that's a little island of Malta right out in the middle of the sea, and they make it into this great uh, bay. There's, it's a beautiful bay. It's perfect. It's not only did God hit the one little island, he put them into a perfect place to spend the winter. I mean, it's just God showing off. You know, you hit, the, hit the island and then uh, get them there. So after three months, so they wintered. Now we're into a better season. They stayed there for three months. We put it to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island because their other ship's toast. It's gone. It's sunk. But he found another Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. And we put in, I'll tell you about them in a second. We put in at Syracuse, stayed there for three days. Then we went to Regium. 
Then the south wind came up. Now they're getting perfect winds. It's sort of like God said, now watch this. It's going to be a nice cruise from here on. So they went to Puteoli. They're in, they're in Italy now. And we found some brothers who spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. The Christians in Rome heard that he was coming. The uh, Forum of Appius is 43 miles south of Rome, so they traveled more than two days to meet him. Uh, the three taverns are about 33 miles south of Rome on the Appian Way, the major interstate that went into Rome in those days. And so uh, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So let me just show you. Uh, this, by the way, is Castor and Pollux. They were twin gods. If you've ever heard of the uh, constellation Gemini, Gemini means twins. It's these guys. They are the twin children of Zeus and Leda. Leda was not his wife, but Zeus was not a good guy. So these are two uh, gods. They often were on figureheads, and they'd have one head pointing one way and one pointing the other way to kind of protect you all the way around. They were the patron gods of sailors. And so sailors, they would be praying to them like crazy. And so I, I can't find anything that has... Castor and Pollux on there, but they would be the figurehead like that on a ship. But they didn't think of them just as a figurehead on the ship. They thought that they really were going to be the gods protecting them. So I want you to stop and think for a second. At the end of that journey, they now know it's not Castor and Pollux that saved us. Paul told us before we started that we were going to crash and nobody was going to be killed, unbelievable as that sounded, because of his God. What a powerful testimony. God is still putting to shame the gods of this world. So that's where he is. He basically, they sail on up Sicily into Italy, and you can just see the road. It leads right up to Rome. Paul then is in prison, and this is really close to where the book of Acts is going to end. But he's basically, when I say in prison, he's held in custody. He's awaiting trial, and he's allowed to talk to people but he's got a Roman soldier to guard him. I was listening to uh, a guy named Matt Chandler. Now, you may or may not know him, but he made a really interesting observation that just struck me as a little bit funny. But can you imagine being chained to Paul? It's the authorities, you know, they come to Paul and they say, okay, Paul, we're going to chain you to a guard 24-7. And Paul says, that's no problem. I'll convert your guards. <laughs> Which you find out later that he did. He not only converted the guards, he converted some of the people in Caesar's household. Some of the imperial family came to Christ because of Paul. He says, that's fine. Chain me up. I'll convert your guards. They said, okay, fine. Then we're going to kill you. Well, it's okay with me. To die is gain. That's some quoting from Paul. And they're like, great. What are we going to do to this guy? Fine, then we're going to let you live. No problem. To live is Christ. It's like, this guy's a nightmare prisoner. You cannot intimidate this guy. You know? So... And, but he does. In this time here, he's going to spend two years there, he ends up converting a lot of people in Caesar's household. So that's how we get to Rome, and Acts ends on this note. The book of Acts ends. He calls the Jews, I'm leaving out a little piece, but he called the Jews like he always does, not the believers, the Jews, and come to him and he said, look, uh, appreciate you guys coming to see me. Uh, you may have heard some bad things about me from Jerusalem. They said, no, we haven't. He goes, oh, really? Good. Let's open our Bibles because I'd like to tell you a story 
about this Jesus who is the Messiah, and he does. And it said some of them were convinced by what he said. Does this sound like just normal Paul? It's like, Paul, do you not realize you're a prisoner? And he's like, prisoner? Are you kidding me? I have these people right where I want them. You know, I'm in Rome. That's where I wanted to go. That's where God wanted me to go. Well, yeah, change. That's a bit of a problem. But nevertheless, I'm just going to go preach to him. And he does. But some of the Jews believe. Others did not. And so the, uh, Paul says to them, you know what? God said this would happen. You, you will be ever hearing but never understanding because your hearts become calloused. Therefore, God will go to the Gentiles. And for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts ends the way it begins, preaching about the kingdom of God, the coming of the power of God and the message of salvation for everyone who would believe. So this is Paul at the end, and it ends abruptly right there. This is where the book of Acts ends. He gets to Rome, and you realize that for at least two years, he's preaching to anybody that'll come hear him. He's a Roman citizen, so even though he's detained, he's allowed to have visitors. His friends can come and bring him food and take care of him. He can write letters, which he does. He writes several letters. They're called the prison letters. So like the you know, that book of Philippians, where he says, oh, I'm a prisoner, but that book is all about joy, that letter. He's writing to the church in Philippi, which we've been to on this journey, and he's saying, look, I'm a prisoner here, but I gotta tell you, it's working out great. He says, the fact that I'm a prisoner, well, that part kind of stinks, but you won't believe how the gospel is spreading. I mean, this is the attitude of the early believers. And so this is Paul at this time, able to write, able to teach, able to preach, but our story ends right there. And we, you don't know what happens after that. But I thought I might fill in the blank, unless we have any questions. I know I blitzed through that pretty quickly. But in a second, I'll answer the question of what happened after that. I only have one question. It's okay. I kind of went through that a little quickly. Is Paul related to Gilligan? Is Paul related to Gilligan? <laughs> That's a good point. Um, you know what I think, though? I think the Gilligan story might have been modeled on this. You know? That's right. Well, a lot of people say, why does the book of Acts end there? This time period is 60, 61 AD. I'll just tell you now that Paul is going to die about 68. But I want to tell you about the emperor at this time. Uh, there are a couple of reasons, by the way, why might Acts have ended here. One, intentionally, that Luke intentionally knew how Paul's life ended, but he wanted to end the story there for some reason. Don't know what. Another is that Luke may have died. I mean, that just happened in those days, and so sometime in that period, Luke died and stopped recording it. I have another theory I'll tell you in a second, but I want to tell you about Nero. Nero, this is a statue of Nero when he was being crowned emperor at 17 years old, and this is his mother, Agrippina. She is the ultimate domineering mother. So he becomes, in uh, 54 AD, so most of the time that we've been talking about Acts, until 68 AD. He's an interesting emperor. In the first few years, pretty stable guy. But by the time of Paul, here in 60, when Paul gets to Rome, totally off the rails. Becomes emperor in 54, and he quickly believes that some people are plotting against him. His mother wants him to do some things that he won't do. And so she secretly starts trying to get his younger brother declared emperor. He's uh, like 14 years old. His name's Britannicus. 
So Nero finds out about this. Well, can't really do much to mom, but he poisons his younger brother. Well, mom kind of takes that as a, maybe I should back off and not tell him to clean his room. But so then time goes on, a year or two, and she gets involved in another plot because he gets more and more unstable. He doesn't want to do what she wants. He goes through about three marriages, uh, rumored to have killed at least one of his wives, and in 59 AD, he has his mother killed. So that's right before Paul gets here. So Nero, very unstable guy, he ends up killing himself in 67, 68 AD, no later than 68. But he ends up killing himself uh, by stabbing himself to death. He's going to show back up in the book of Revelation, by the way, as one of the things that people think they might be talking about Nero. But he ended up killing himself. I want to point out an interesting parallel here. If you think about the people, look at Jesus' life. The guy who judged Jesus, think of Pontius Pilate. He comes before Pilate. He's the symbol of authority and power, the Roman Empire. And he has Jesus put to death. According to tradition, I think I told you this earlier in the series, he, well, I know he's recalled to Rome. But then according to tradition, he kills himself in disgrace later. Here's Nero, who's going to judge Paul, and he has Paul killed, and he ends up killing himself. I think it's really interesting that you see in every little twist of history, God continually pointing out that the things you see in the world that you think are so powerful are not really driving events. God's really the one driving events. Paul ends up being beheaded because he's a Roman citizen. Peter is also is going to show up in Rome around that 67, 68 AD time as a prisoner for preaching Christ. He's not a Roman citizen, so he gets crucified. But Paul's probably be beheaded uh, by uh, Nero, according to early church tradition, uh, 67 or 68. What happened between that time in 60, 61 and 67? Most people think, and I think it's probably true, he gets off on these charges. He probably stayed there two years because that was sort of the statute of limitations. If the people that are accusing you didn't show up within 18 months, your case could be dismissed. Many people think that's probably what happened. The Jews thought, fine, you're out of our reach. The Romans have you. You know, good luck, Paul. At least we got you out of Israel. And so they don't ever come to press the charges. So most people think he is released. When he wrote the letter to the Roman church before he ever got there, he said his plan was to go to Jerusalem, come to Rome, which, by the way, worked out perfectly. Oh, except he was a prisoner when he got to Rome. You know, it didn't work out the way Paul thought, but it worked out the way God wanted. And then he wanted to go to Spain because he didn't think anybody preached the gospel there. So most people believe that he's released in about 62 or 63 and takes off for Spain. But the tide has turned, and the Romans are starting to really persecute the Christians at this point. Nero's gone nuts. Nero burns down a bunch of Rome and blames it on the Christians. I mean, he just wanted to burn it down so he could rebuild it because it was just terrible slums in Rome. And so he blamed it on the Christians, and so huge persecution broke out. So Paul is likely rearrested, brought back to Rome, and they're imprisoned. Because when he writes the letter of 2 Timothy, it sounds radically different than the letter he wrote to Philippi. Philippi, he says, I'm in jail, but God willing, I'll get out. But even so, I'm preaching the gospel. 2 Timothy, he says this. He says, the time has come for my departure. 
I am poured out like a drink offering. I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. And now a crown of glory awaits me. This is a man who realizes, I'm not getting out of this. So he probably goes off, gets rearrested, brought back, and then Nero's going to kill every Christian he can find. And that's probably how Paul's life ends. My view, and this is kind of my parting lesson to you out of this on why does Acts end this way? I don't know why it does, but I like it that it does. And here's why. Because the story of the church doesn't end with Paul. It's sort of like a dot, dot, dot at the end of the story. So you see the church from the beginning when Jesus said, you wait there, and on Pentecost, power is going to come, and it does. And they speak in tongues, and the people go, hey, what's up with that? And they go, let me tell you the story. And we follow Peter and the ministry to the Jews, and then Paul and the ministry to the Gentiles, and then traveling all around the world, and now you've got Christians all over the place so much so that the Roman Empire starts to try to stamp this thing out. And so as Paul finishes his mission, I mean, he's had a hard job. God said, I want to show you. Remember when he was converted? He said to Ananias, he said, Paul's going to come to you, and and, uh, you're going to lay your hands on him, and he's going to be able to receive his sight, and he now knows that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you're going to baptize him, but I need you to tell him how much he must suffer for my name. God loved Paul. God used Paul. He's not mad at him. He just said, I have a hard job for you, Paul. And so he did. Remember, city after city, he'd go in. They stoned, left him for dead. They would beat him. He'd go to the next city and preach the gospel. And as hard as it was on Paul, it just exploded in the world. And now here we come to the end of his life, and Caesar's going to kill him, but Caesar can't kill his soul, and Caesar can't kill the church. And I think that's why it ends, just sort of, letting you realize, I don't know what happened to Paul, don't know what happened to the church, but we do know what happened to the church, don't we? It's thrived for 2,000 years. So we continue to write the story of the book of Acts, and we need to continue to do exactly what they did. Let's go tell the world the good news about Jesus Christ, about the kingdom and that Jesus Christ is Lord. And even when it looks like the world is powerful, The book of Acts is here to remind us that our God is really in charge and all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. So I want you to take that encouraging note. I want to thank you for being on this great journey with us. And uh, let's just go continue to be the church in Acts. God bless you guys.